What's up, y'all? Yash here. Have you been looking for a boost without the crash? Introducing Boost Caffeine Free, our natural formula includes ingredients like green tea to give you the energy to power throughout your entire day. The best part? It's caffeine free, so you can enjoy it any time of the day without disrupting your sleep. Say goodbye to jitters and crashes, and hello to sustained energy with Boost Caffeine Free. Available now at mswnutrition.com. Use code HDYHBOOST to get 10% off. All right, guys, welcome to the Howdy Health Fest. We are filming today from San Francisco. It's the first time we get to do a podcast down in San Francisco. We, we came down. Uh, oh, and we have a new guest host, uh, and Jen, and we're going to, I don't know, I'm really excited about doing this because uh, as as she connected us earlier, you're going to be coming down to Howdy Health Fest. I think this might be releasing after the festival, but at that point... Um, people will be able to connect back and, and, and get to hear what your thoughts and your, and your words. So we are here with Jen Ashby and I'll let the, I'll let you do a brief introduction to, uh, to the listeners and to the viewers. Super brief. Okay. Um, I am in the heart of my heart's an acupuncturist, but I actually practice integrative East Asian medicine and I've been practicing since 1996 here in the Bay area. I still have had my private practice, which is where we are right now <laughs> since then, and um, and I work at UCSF at the Osher Center of Integrative Health. That is so. So tell me about, more about UCSF, what you do there, mm-hmm. like what what because I'm I'm new to to the whole San Francisco vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So UCSF is an academic institution, medical institution. It's medical school, dental school, school of psychiatry. Um, and within the whole UCSF medical system, we have a clinic called the Osher Center of Integrative Health. It was the Osher Center of Integrative Medicine, and we just took medicine out of it and thought that health was actually more um, applicable to what we do. So that is my what we call my home-based clinic within this giant medical institution. Um, but it's academia. Right, so it's yeah. a lot of uh, public health work, research work, um, and the Osher Center in itself is kind of it's it was the um, it was the first Osher Center ever created by a gentleman named Bernard Osher, um, who's a philanthropic being, <laughs> and uh, and I have uh, been able to have a conversation with Mr. Osher and said why why did you do all this. Like, do you know, do you, do you actually know what you've done by creating Osher centers? So they're integrative health clinics that also do research. Um, he, and he explained to me why he did it. He was on vacation and I think he'd gotten a cough um, that was maybe bordering on bronchitis or pneumonia or something. And uh, they brought him antibiotics and so, but the cough didn't go away and he was getting really frustrated and said, surely there's something else. And somebody brought him Chinese herbs and his cough went away and he was like, hmm, <laughs> there must be something about this. So the San Francisco UCSF was the first Osher Center that he endowed. And, um, and so that's what we do. We do, we kind of push the boundaries of evidence-based integrative health there. That's that's really satisfying to hear about because uh you know i I graduated from st mary's my business partner his name is jonathan he's a nurse practitioner Mm -hmm. and a chiropractor Mm -hmm. and uh we all you know part of the reason that we even partnered together is because yeah he's my best friend but he 
had a lot of frustrations on the way he had to practice working in um, pain care or, or just traditional meds, medicine. And, and, uh, and I've always been a business person. I've always been a business person. So I always, every time he complained about that, I want you just open up your own clinic and like just do whatever you want. And I was like, no, you can't you know, really do that because, well, first of all, Yes, you can, but he wasn't trained that way. It was always uh -huh. training to like, no, you, you just follow these orders and do this thing. So, uh, so it was always a, a fun way. Th that for me became really fun to help him figure out new ways, new avenues. Uh, and I want to get more into that, but I also want to do a brief introduction to Dr. Jen Smith as well. Uh, <laughs> but how, do you, how did you guys know each other? And you're my introduction to to. Jen yeah. Asprey to Dr. Jen Asprey. Yeah, Jen and I met through when I was in school, in grad school at ACTCM, American College of Traditional Chinese Medicine, and you sort of became my mentor there. And I worked in this clinic for a little while after I graduated, and we've just shared a lot of ideas, I think, a lot. over the years about what Chinese medicine could be and how to make it accessible and relatable for people. Um, but you've inspired me so much and taught me oh. so much and yeah, it's been really amazing. Yeah, I was your woman's health teacher. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. mm -hmm. the, I mean, the, so the thing was, that, so I've been working on the Howdy Health Festival for, this is our third year now, and I, we were just hanging out and I forgot how it was, it was like, you you should have Jen Ashby there. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then we made some connections. She, emailed you or texted she, you? Well, she said, would you be interested? And I said, oh, a whole festival. I'm not sure I have enough bling. <laughs> I'm not sure I have enough bling for a whole festival. And she's like, you got plenty of bling. And wait till you meet these guys. And here we are. Yeah. You're just in a TED Talk. You're writing a book. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> all true, you, too. You only have a six-month waiting list at, at Osher Center yeah. for patients to see you. So you have plenty of bling. <laughs> I don't really, months. yes. I mean, I suppose <laughs> it's true when you look at it on paper. I just don't think about it that way. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you're, you seem already so modest and you're just like, I just don't even know what people don't know kind of deal. Yeah. And that's probably always like a big situation, right? That you, Whenever people come and, and I guess, uh, see you as a practitioner, yeah. are you surprised by questions at this point? Or, no. No? Um, not at all. I'm not surprised by questions. Um, what I'm surprised by is how little information uh, patients have gotten from their other practitioners, which is usually based on how little they know. So like in medical school, I think they get six hours of nutritional training yep. and stuff, and most disease is an inflammatory process, and the fact that every doctor is not talking to people about an anti-inflammatory diet makes me want to go postal, like it's very frustrating <laughs> for me. Um, so, so even in my TED talk, although I stay, I really, Jen and I talk a lot about um, how to keep a 4,000 year old medicine relevant in today's times with the way that, that um, you know, a, a young adult generation thinks and prioritizes. Um, and, and beyond just practicing, but kind of for um, the future of the medicine to, to, to remain valid. Um, so as we have these conversations and we go way down deep, fun rabbit holes, we have our own little two-person think tank sometimes. <laughs> um, when I did the TED talk, and I, I really try to remain true to the medicine that I practice, and um, and bringing it to a point where it stays simple enough that it's accessible to anybody every day in their everyday life. 
right? Yeah. And so I think that simplifying things into bite-sized pieces, which is nothing new, and it's not brain surgery, and it's nothing anybody hasn't actually even heard before, but it's just presenting all information in a way that seems like um, something they can conquer themselves once they're given the information. Did that answer your question? No, yeah, of course, because, well, so, so what I, from what, you, from what you're saying, what I always think about is people want like a, a quick fix, right? Like even mm. e even at the clinic that we that we run, it's a we have we have a vitamin bar and and uh, the biggest thing that we always think for think about is like well let's give them something that they'll feel right away just from like a like I mean obviously we want it's not gonna fix anything mm. as far as like feeling good but but if we can give, give them a little bit of energy with natural herbs mm. to make an energy drink then then at least that gets them somewhere that gets that gets you them to the trusting process mm -hmm. right because that's i think that's a big issue now is the the trust in medicine i agree i mean i think you know and and i teach to first year med students that you see too like there's a few things that i'm really um adamant about uh disseminating information i am my patient's employee this is not a hierarchical relationship, and I have no power over them or their bodies at all, <laughs> right? I have a skill set that I introduce to them that they either take or they don't. They're not allowed to lean on me to make them better. Yeah. I don't, my ego doesn't need that kind of relationship either. So when people start feeling better, I say, you know, the beauty of this is that it's all you. Yeah. But they are allowed to open that within themselves because somehow they've trusted me, right? Yeah. So, so that's the nature of the dynamic in it. And when I'm speaking to first year, second year med students all the time, I always bring it back to humanism in medicine. Like you're, the human part is so trained out of you and having a mutually beneficial energy exchange between you and a patient will only make you a better doctor. Because when you can get, when you can close that gap and feel and hear someone, half they trust you and when a patient feels heard half the battle's still on it yeah you as a practitioner too it's really interesting um when i was seeing you as a patient i remember i was seeing you for several months maybe and i remember you saying to me okay you you're done you've graduated <laughs> and i was like what do you mean like i can just stop these treatments and you're like yes this is resolved and you can you know your body you can trust your body to continue the process and it was really refreshing not feel like yeah don't believe in the business of medicine right. <laughs> and i'll never be rich either but you know what i sleep well at night <laughs> because it's true like you did a great job with what you were facing and you'd kind of regained your power and your agency in the process of get relating back to your physical body right um a lot of what i teach you what my ted talk was on is utilizing your body's physical energy is engaged to understand the strength of your immune system and your vulnerability to disease right? but you can bring that into anything just the embodiment of yourself as opposed to oh, see I can go down a rabbit hole here. do you please, have another please, question please please no please please do I, I I'm connecting to all of this as well too because I'm well we talk about like I forgot what it is, but one of the comments, you just said something about, like, I'm never going to be rich or whatever. Yeah. I've often told her where I'm just like, 
I, I mean, I don't. I think I'm already rich because I already have everything that I want. Like, like I don't need anything else. Here, here. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and it's that wanting more and quicker and faster. And it's like, what? Where does that even come from? And this keeps coming in my life right now. The whole like, I'm doing. I'm a big Sam Harris fan and his whole Waking Up series. So I'm listening to a lot of things currently on the thought of always striving for more and never arriving as though the future is something that we're going to catch up to and it's something that i'm working on a lot in my life currently is just i woke up <laughs> that's a freaking miracle for all of us and to stop being outside of where we are like presence i'm really yeah. working on presence which is an interesting thing when you have to when you're writing talks for the future and trying to do a book for the future but it's all in that present moment because i think that whatever i'm creating in that present moment it'll resonate whenever it's delivered or spoken or yeah. read or whatever but yes well because there's also time to uh, to enjoy what you because you this is a point that you wanted at some point and now you're here right and it's like so so, so enjoy that too here's the thing <laughs> I don't live that way. Like, I'm not, I'm just doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And, and at some point, something's received well by somebody like Jen or something. And then it comes through to something else. But I am not goal oriented like that, <laughs> which is really fascinating that, that in this moment in time that there's a little bit of an explosion in my career. It's kind of cool. And, yeah. and I want to, but I want to stay in that kind of um, graceful humility in the process, right? I think that kind of keeps us present as well. For sure. So what does grace mean to you? Uh, I just had another conversation about this, <laughs> actually. <sighs> what does grace mean to me? I think ultimately grace means just the acceptance of what is and, and where you are. Mm. Nice. For you? Mm. I think there's a gentleness to it, yeah, yeah, so receiving and like allowing things to flow gently. Mm. Nice. What about, what about you? you? Uh, well, I always think of grateful, and that's a morning practice of mine is, is gratefulness, but uh, someone else asked me that too, and, and for me, I started thinking like, um, I started thinking like physics and and, 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 all, and I was thinking, well, I mean, it could, we're just energy, right, and so it's like, well, I could do, but even space is energy. So it's like, I could have easily been nothing. Like this energy that embodies this body could have easily been nothing and not feel. So just the fact that I can feel, even if I feel pain or suffering or happiness or joy, just the fact that I can, I'm just grateful for that. And so that to me is grace is to sit in that, in that like, sweet, like I get to experience this. The, the recent conversation I had, because I'm with you right there on that, um, was around death, actually. Mm -hmm. And that somewhere recently in my life, and I have no wish to die now or anything, <laughs> just to be super clear, but that the idea of dying for the first time in my life doesn't scare me. Mm -hmm. nice. The person I was speaking to actually said to me, like, I'm not wishing death, but I'm not afraid of it anymore. It's something switched in the way that I was living my life, where that fear kind of went away. And I do a lot of work, end-of-life work with patients as well, so I'm around death a lot. Um, and he said to me, I think that's grace. Yeah. And it led to a whole conversation and complex conversation, thoughts and ideas around grace. That's cool. That's yeah. fantastic. 
I think Grace was first introduced to me though with my um, my giant crush I had on Audrey Hepburn, and then it just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just developed over decades into something totally different. Well, it, being in the sales world, I had a mentor of mine uh, tell me well, he was like our boss too, but he told me like you need you need to add grace in your life, but he really meant it from like you need to go to church more. Oh, um, and I was younger, I was like 23 maybe, mm -hmm. and. You know, and I was kind of like selling a lot and just like partying because I was making so much money, like selling stuff, but then uh -huh. like just spending all my money yeah. uh, and then just making more money. And, and, and I never connected with that because I was like, what? But every time I go to church, it just doesn't, it, I don't, I just, <laughs> it doesn't, I don't get anything out of it. Right? Right. But it was more in like having to find, and now I, I feel like I, I sit in grace very often, if not at all times or most of the time at least, but that was a different meaning. Mm -hmm. at the time and yeah. I think for him too it was just he really meant like you should go to church right 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 I'm, <laughs> I'm tripping because I would never think of I'm not a religious person I'm a spiritual person so I wouldn't think of grace in terms of church and the minute you said that I went oh of course grace means that to religious folks yeah right like, <laughs> yeah. like it's just it's a different so for me um, and it's one of the ways I'm actually opening the the festival Hattie Health Fest is that it's time, and this this is another definition of grace to me. It's time that the way we want to think about our bodies and the way that our bodies actually feel are more harmonious. Yeah, and that is another mm -hmm. I think definition of grace is how we treat ourselves within ourselves as a unit, as opposed to just in relation to the external world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, because it's so much of the way we experience ourselves is learned, right, from your environment. The patterning. <laughs> the endless patterning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we're staying with some one of her friends, and like, and there's this, oh, there's this baby. <laughs> <laughs> they have a baby. There's a baby, <laughs> and it's just really neat to see a baby, a, a baby, is the way that they experience everything because it's everything's so new and at what point do we become immune to the amazingness right? <laughs> of, of all the things. I'm sure somebody has an answer to that question, <laughs> but yeah, I think the patterns build over time, right? And they always start within our family structure, however you define family. And I believe that it's all in reflection of how to receive or reject love and that everything stems from that. Yeah, and so then so then a question on that is is a lot of whenever you you know, being in, in acupuncture not there's a lot of you encounter I imagine a lot of energy blockages. Mm -hmm. Does that happen from patterns like that yeah. they're so used to? I mean, yeah, I mean it be it mental like thoughts um spiritual issues or physical yeah i mean lifestyle and patterning is where it all comes from absolutely and and um people's resistance to unblocking is a real thing mm. too you know um and and but as a practitioner to not have an attachment to the outcome mm. and to allow people to be in their own process so you get to lead people and and just watch how they respond. It's really has it has so little to do with us, really. Yeah. Um, and so uh, uh, and it's different for every single person. 
Yeah, and and so for, as a practitioner, is that is it hard to let go of the outcome? Like you want to you want to fix things. Or... I think when I was a younger practitioner, my ego wanted everybody to get better. <laughs> you know, because it's hard to keep going if nobody's getting better. Like, what's your inspiration? <laughs> what's your motivation? And and are you doing it right? Like, even when Jen was a student of mine, it was less about just women's health in general. Women's health is one of the most difficult. Fields, departments of East Asian medicine, but it was about being a good diagnostician because if you're not a good diagnostician, you've got nothing. It doesn't matter what you look up if your diagnosis isn't right. You're not gonna, you're not gonna do it well. Um, and so, through time of just learning and learning and learning how to be a good diagnostician, then I was able to let go of the outcome of patients because I knew that my diagnosis was wet and whatever else was going on was part of their journey, their experience, yeah. whatever they wanted to let go of, not let go of. I, I treat really medically complex patients at UCSF. And um, some people don't even know who they would be anymore without their diagnoses, you know. And that identifying with illness is a, it's a, it's a, that's a doozy. So a lot of it is, you know, what would it look like? And we're not, I'm not talking about cancer or yeah, yeah. that. You know, what would it look like if you could sleep? What would it look like if you didn't have anxiety around this? Who would you be if you didn't have this pain? And sometimes people can't answer that. Yeah, that's a, I imagine that's, because you're, they're already identified with something, right? So do you think diagnosis help more than they hurt, hurt or help more? I think that, I think that that's a very big question. Yeah. Um, no, I don't, I don't, um, I think that for some people a diagnosis is, is really helpful when it's like I'm having these feelings and these sensations and I'm not well. To have a diagnosis is a starting point to, with which to launch to get better. Mm-hmm. And for other people, a diagnosis becomes an identity um, that is harder to shake. This is said without judgment of one being better or worse, sure, right? Yeah. We're all on our own journey. But um, I think that, um, I, listen, I am not anti-Western medicine. I am yeah. so grateful for Western yeah. medicine. And a lot of what I do, the integrative component of what I do is that I take into consideration labs and treatments and medications and previous procedures. I mean, anything that's happened to them in the Western medical world comes into an informed decision for me in making a diagnosis so that I can work within this big medical system and do no harm and um, yeah uh, so yeah I don't think a diagnosis is good or bad I think it has a lot more to do with the person and where they're at and their patterning yeah I've also one of my practices lately has been on the idea of letting go of of the idea of right or wrong because I just imagine there's a spectrum of anything in between and to give anything like one or the other is probably not helpful <laughs> it's a kind of a, it, it becomes a moral soapbox right it yeah. ends up being like that gray where I think that um, the ethics are much more of a better description of kind of the way medicine should be approached is as, as opposed to like right or wrong morality cut and dried you know Unless I need surgery or something, yeah. then there's nothing's up for negotiation. Like <laughs> in a medical emergency. 
So how did you come into Eastern practice? Like, what made you fall in love with it? That's a very place? funny story, actually. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, so um, a guy I was dating and I had been saving up money, and he had um, <laughs> he had inherited an old Cadillac Seville. You know, like it was like the metallic aqua blue size nice. with the white vinyl roof, right? Spoke rims. Yeah, it was flashy. <laughs> but we rode motorcycles, and so we stuck a motorcycle trailer on the back with three motorcycles, and we went to go travel to the tip of Baja. He was going to write the Great American Novel, and I was going to ride motorcycles around the desert and whatever. Um, we got down there. It was much more ex expensive than we thought it was, and we actually didn't like each other as much as we thought we did when we were from <laughs> San Francisco. So we went back up. We drove back up to um, San Diego, where my folks and my little sister lived, because my little sister was graduating from high school, and my little sister had always looked up to me so much. Her seven years apart, she the sun and moon rose and set on me. So at her graduation, which I said, what are you going to do? She said, I don't know. And I said, don't worry about it. I still don't know what I want to do with my life. And she looked at me, and she actually said, yeah, I kind of don't want to be like you. <laughs> and I was like, excuse, excuse me? So I said, what do you like to do? She said, all I like know is I like to work with my hands. And sometime in that week, I was at the family chiropractor and told him the story. And he goes, well, why don't you take it for an interview at an acupuncture school and a chiropractic school? And I was like, oh, my God, that's a great idea. So I set up an interview with us at an acupuncture school. I'd never even had acupuncture. I didn't know anything about it. I was on the edge of my seat, and she fell asleep in her <laughs> chair sitting up. And on this idea, I was like, wait, people can make themselves better? <laughs> like, what? That's really cool. Yeah. And I, I applied and got into grad school without ever having had acupuncture. I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I was in school like two or three months before I even was needled. And then it really helped me with a back injury that I'd sustained when I was 14 years old. I grew up on a crazy farm with exotic animals and stuff. And anyway. I injured my back and it totally helped me and that was it. I, this is all I've done. I'm turning 56 years old and I started this when I was 23, 24. That's wow. cool. Yeah. That's so awesome. Yeah, it's my sister's fault. <laughs> <laughs> what does she do now? She was a teacher. But she welded for a long time. She and dad made these art things and she was a big welder. Well, I think it's something I've never tried. I told you that the other day. I was like, I, I, I can make anything, and I've never used a welding tool. So, that'd be a you need nice to one do there. that. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be a nice one. Yeah. Oh yeah, I was gonna ask you how how's your practice changed over the years? Obviously, that's many years to practice, and you've kind of focused in different areas, and you've focused on some really interesting, like deep, challenging conditions. I have. That's yeah. true. So I think when I started, so I think my practice has always kind of reflected where I am in life, right? So when I was a young woman, people were coming in to see me for menstrual regulation and period pain and PMS and all of that kind of stuff, and then physical pains. And then, um, oh. Got some music. They're here. Um, and then um, as time went on, People were starting to come to help me to get pregnant and to have their babies, and I was young and I had all this energy and I was helping people deliver in hospitals and at home. And, and then I taught for almost 10 years at the local acupuncture school, so I kind of um, helped create pretty much an entire generation 
of practitioners that knew everything I knew about women's health. Like I wasn't one of these people that withheld my pearls of wisdom. I gave it all away because I believe that in sharing dissemination of knowledge will only make this our field better. Right? Withholding is yeah. antiquated and makes no sense in this culture. So, um, so. <laughs> then when I, I actually got divorced and needed a job that had great health insurance for the kids and I got the job at UC and at that point I was also kind of ready to look beyond the tip of my own nose. I kind of felt like what I had done for so long was I had kind of done it and I was just kind of looking for the next challenge and so when I got that job I was thrilled and <laughs> um, but I was really thrown into the world of oncology um, which I had a little bit of experience with, but really just a little bit of experience. And when I was turning to everybody to say, I mean, this was eight years ago, I guess. When I was turning to everybody to say, um, you know, how do I do this? How do I, what is, and nobody really could give me a definition of how to approach oncology in this. So I thought to myself, well, I'm gonna do what I teach my students, stick with the basics. Are they excess, are they deficient, are they hot, are they cold? Like, just stick to what you know. And through that, um, I started developing theories and ideas about how to approach really complex medical people. And something opened in my brain through all of this experience. And I'm also a specialist in a genetic kidney disorder called polycystic kidney disease and um, I've had some real aha moments on how to translate Eastern medicine into Western terms when understanding what happens genetically in diseases and once I kind of open that up in my brain I've been able to develop ideas and theories that I can then share that information and with the polycystic kidney disease thing, I shared it with a couple of people and they invited me to do, present it at Grand Rounds at UCSF and then I was invited to become part of the Center for Excellence for Polycystic Kidney Disease at UCSF and now I sit in on these really, really like brand muffin kidney journal meetings once a month and um, uh, so yeah, so I've taken what I knew and and I don't have to do women's health the way I did anymore. There's 10 years worth of you guys out there that can like take over that part. And, yeah. and I've just kind of been expanding my own mind and how to pursue complex medical conditions. I was published in February um, in a Western peer-reviewed medical journal, um, not for the research that we did on non-pharmacological approaches to cancer-related pain. I was published for the protocol that I wrote for it because it was such a novel approach. It was, and so it was novel, but I imagine it was just so traditional from your sense. Exactly. The beauty of the principal investigator, Maria Chow, who is at Osher at UCSF, brilliant woman, was that she actually let me write it pragmatically, how we practice. And so within that, I had to come up with um, a way to describe how we practice pragmatically, but that could be reproducible in a Western clinic. And it was actually Rosa Schneier, who's an acupuncturist researcher who I worked for at Stanford for three years on a study on depression and pregnancy that actually was published like in the New York Times and stuff like it was an amazing study. She actually taught me that Eastern medicine research can be done pragmatically. And the problem with it is that it, people only want it 
measure acupuncture. And there's not a single frickin' one of us who only does acupuncture. Yeah. We don't walk in a room and stick needles in people. That's not <laughs> the way it works. Like, we talk, and there's lifestyle, and I mean, everything is incorporated. And so, um, uh, anyway, it's a little bone I have to pick with, with, with the scientific method. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but the fact that we still get positive outcomes when we're using, like, one finger on one hand in a medicine that has ten fingers and two hands, that there's any positive outcome when we do research on acupuncture is such a kudos to the acupuncture. Yeah. Because it was never meant to be, like, isolated all by itself. Yeah. Stupid. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I digress again. I, I love it. But to see, the thing is, the more research comes out, on, it always goes back to like, yeah, we've known this for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Right? And so then it's, how, well, how do you explain that in today's terms that we've already known this for thousands of years? Mm-hmm. Like, is that something that's difficult to do to explain? No. I think that, um, I think it takes a lot. Um, I think that I have developed a level of confidence and not needing to be seen and heard in those situations, but in being able to speak clearly enough to plant a seed that might grow in the heads of people that have been trained to not believe what we do. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the beginning, I was like defensive and um, loud, not with volume, you know, but with intensity. Um, when I was in these situations um, in a Western medical world. And now I think um, I'm so confident in what we do and how we do it um, that somehow energetically that comes across and then they're more curious about what can you do. And honestly, it ha- that's making it about me. Patient outcomes show themselves. Yeah, yeah. The end, right? So like neuropathy and chemotherapy, yeah, I can keep them in treatment because I can keep their neuropathy under control. You know, keeping platelets up and keeping, you know, helping to manage neutrophils and things like that that keep them in treatment. Those outcomes speak for themselves in the oncology world, and then they start sending more and more patients. Yeah, because I imagine that if you do get stuck with, like, I want them to figure this out now, then you're you're in the same system, right? You're you're basically doing what you were preaching not to do. <laughs> and our team, there are a team of five acupuncturists over there. First of all, we outnumber any other discipline within OSHER because of supply and demand. Mm-hmm. That is huge. The fact that we have a place where we're salaried and pensioned as, as Chinese medicine practitioners, all of this is pioneering steps forward for the future in our career. So part of what I'm speaking at at CSOMA in March is um, how to take what we have started as a group at Osher and and start plug and play it in other institutional settings mm-hmm. based on outcomes. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So tell me, uh, I want to I want to go back to the festival really quick just to do another little plug while we're doing this. What what uh, what made you say yes to come out? So. When we were talking, when we had our, our, our talk about it, what I would love is that you guys aren't trying to be anybody's quick fix. Yeah. <laughs> that it isn't a one-size-fits-all. And I had just given this TED Talk that was like, God, it's so hard to navigate through all this propaganda and information that's thrown at us as our answer. There's no one or two things that are ever going to be our answer because 
we're, com we're complex beings, but in that we are one system within ourselves, and, and we don't do one thing to stay alive, so why would we focus on one or two things to be healthy? Right, and so what I've done is I've I've narrowed it down to eight, and then you told me what you guys are doing and what you're incorporating, and that it's really about people finding their own health regimen. Yeah. And I was like, these are my people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's why. Yeah, it was. It's really interesting how we even got to that point. First of all, even the festival was an incredible way that it just happened. It was just an opportunity. Then I was like, oh, and and we saw it as an opportunity to offer a bunch of other people. This was during COVID, mm -hmm. uh, to say like, well, we won't get shut down because we're we're gonna set it up as a clinic, but it's a festival. Uh, and so, but all of you guys that want to share some information, to just come on over and create whatever you want. And, and sure enough, for a whole month, we did that. That was the first iteration of, of the vessel it was That's a whole so month cool. long and we just had like a place and people just came and like i want to teach about this or i want to do a cooking class or i want to do teach a yoga class or i want to teach about chakras or i want to teach about you know whatever and it yeah. was just the whole i was i was so much i mean i was working the whole time because at that point it was three of us working the, like creating this event but i was still amazed from all the information, I was like, well, I want to try that, and I want to try that, and I... And that people showed up and were brave enough to say, I want to teach this. Yeah. I want people to know this. That, that also takes bravery in my book. That's really cool. Yeah, it's fantastic. created a whole community. And so now we get to celebrate, and so that's that's our mission. That, well, that's a, I guess, what do you call it, a tag, like a mission tag of, of the festival is to celebrate health. And, uh, and I think that celebration is very important. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, how do you add celebration to your life? Ah, I mean, I think with age comes the wisdom of not taking everything so damn seriously. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everything isn't a crisis, and everything doesn't have to be embodied all the time. And and my kids are big, so like now I get to enjoy them as just their own individual human beings. So there's a lot of laughter in my household. Um, uh, so joy is one of my eight principles, right? Nice. And joy, people think of it as gratitude, which is part of joy, but joy also encompasses many, many other things, playfulness and laughter and grace and um, flexibility and presence. And um, so that's really how I do it. So I celebrate um, at this age with a lot of quiet time and nature. Nice. Yeah. I do a lot of outs, I'm just outside by myself often and my bed <laughs> people cannot should not underestimate their bed we spend so much of our life in our, and my bed is a great source of joy for me hell yeah I, you know what I, I'm beginning to have to feel the bed thing a little bit the thing is I can just sleep anywhere like I, hard can. bed I can sleep don't standing tell women up, over like... 50 that you're not allowed to sleep that <laughs> <laughs> well she doesn't necessarily appreciate it. Well, not that you, you appreciate it I'm sure but you're just like what why and I'm just it's like, such a skill it is a skill I possess that once <laughs> my joke was you could stand me up in a corner I had a good night's sleep somewhere that disappeared so on the bed thing do you have great mattress and sheet recommendations all of it I, all of it I'll email you all of it I because it's it's just it's just so important and then the other place for me to find celebration is uh, just being around the people I love I mm -hmm. I, I carve out a lot of time in my life to be around the people that I love. I, there were times in my life when I didn't, when I was focused on other things, and I think my mental health suffered. Mm -hmm. Not being around the people that I, it can just be me around and just 
be goofy. And there's a 12-year-old boy that resides in me all the time. <laughs> I'm always trying to stay full and, you know, I just get to be myself. Yeah. So is that part of, you know, quote-unquote, the treatment that when people come to you? is like, hey, you know, be around people you love, find your tribe, in a sense? I mean, I think that, I think, so, first of all, the ability to focus on health is a privilege, right? And our health status is very related to where we find ourselves socioeconomically. And um, I have to be, I try to be very careful to uh, biases around that this isn't easy and as simple for a majority of the people on this planet. So when I talk about how are you finding joy, I have to be sensitive to what an individual's status is, where they have found themselves landed within our nation's institutionalized systems, right? Um, so when I'm asking how, how are you celebrating, I have to say it to, is there something that you find daily that, that makes you happy or makes you smile, right? So I, I, I try to keep it as basic, take the privilege out of it, yeah. And try to meet people where they are. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine for some people, if you were to say, go hang out with people you like, it's like, I don't like anyone. <laughs> I'm working, they have 12 hours a day to yeah. put food on the table and it's not safe to walk out the door of my house. Like, you gotta be careful, you gotta be yeah. sensitive and wise around that. And, and the beauty at, at OSHA, we have so much DEI training and education to have revealed my intrinsic and inherent biases that I would never have told you I had three years ago. Um, and that education, I think, has only made me a much better practitioner. I have a interesting, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I was playing around with some AI tools this morning. Uh, so I'm just gonna see if it, if it goes anywhere significant, but um, AI, right, like the, the, this whole world of AI that's coming, like right, I was literally making a video and telling this AI creature to say certain things and and then I just, you know, edited it and put new ones and it, it just spoke it like a, like a person speaking as a, and I was like, this is insane. So my question where I was kind of going on is, do you think that as AI is learning, you know, let's say AI medicine in the future, do you think that AI is gonna say, it's gonna relate it to like, let's say acupuncture points. I was like, well, this is what you should do because this is what works. So my ex is way into the AI world and does VR and computer CG for movies, right? He makes great movies. And so AI, I came to understand AI in a world with him that otherwise, I mean, I really do kind of reside in a 4,000 year old medicine, right? And, yeah. and I was just like, whoa, this blew my mind. And Sam Harris has a whole bunch of stuff on AI. I think that <sighs> there is, so I always used to argue that AI cannot sense energy. AI can't feel pulses. Mm -hmm. There's some. There are things that AI is not going to be able to incorporate um, that are arts within the field that Jen and I practice. I'm not sure that that's always going to be true. Yeah. When when AI so. 
you ever watch the, the movie Wolves in the Walls, Pete Billington? Yeah. Anyway, mm -hmm. they have an entire where the AI can read ex your expressions mm -hmm. and interacts with you based on expression. That scares the crap out of me, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or, or all the, uh, what is it, fake, the faces that, that are people that don't exist, mm. that look so real. I mean, I think that we're entering into a world that is probably much scarier than we can even wrap our heads around, and probably more dangerous than we can ever even fathom. It's kind of like trying to fathom the universe. Um, I'm not worried about it in my lifetime, but I'm definitely worried about it a little bit in my kids' lifetime and my grandkids' lifetime. So, and with things that I thought were not possible before, I think that they are possible because AI is learning from itself now, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, like you described this morning, AI yeah. learned from itself. You put in more information, and it figured out how to put it all together. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating, right? And and I was reading. This is not to do with it medicine in a sense, but uh, I was reading about uh, how there's, what's it called? I forget what the program is. So there's a, there's a, there's a website, I guess, that where uh, coders, where, you know, just people that write code for programs, uh, donate codes to this program so that anyone can go in there and like, oh, I want to use this code. Mm -hmm. And so now they've developed an AI thing that searches all this free code and you can literally go on there's like i want a program that does this so it goes and searches all the free code and then creates a brand new code to create a brand new program to do the thing that you want and so a lot of people are kind of like upset because it's like well we're giving this for the good of the world now you're profiting off of it yeah and that's you know where does that go to it but like i'd imagine you could still use something that powerful or why wouldn't why wouldn't something that powerful use it for good because not it. Because there's evil in the world. It's the balance <laughs> of the yin and the yang, right? Like everything can't be good all the time. It's just not the. It's not the way of the universe. It's just not the way of. But back to that, because now we have to have a third podcast just so that we can talk about this. <laughs> um, if it was used to create universal health care for everybody on the planet to receive the yeah. same health care, and it took out this entire business of healthcare, I'm off for it. Yeah. That's where I can imagine it being really valuable. Or even like small use cases in Chinese medicine, like I've always thought it would be interesting to have an AI tongue reader, which in theory you could create with vision AI and sort of give people more tools to understand their bodies better and understand their health Oh, better. so like if it could read their tongue, they would say, stay away from these foods, exactly. you've got too much dampness, da 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 Exactly. And we're all out of so the job. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean that... I think yeah. you would probably serve on the board of that AI tool. Yeah, maybe, maybe. It's the whole ethical component. I mean, there are think tank people here in the U.S. within East Asian medicine that are... What they're doing for the future of the medicine is they're taking... They're taking the chemical constituents of our herbs and our, herma, our pharmacopoeia is like enormous to figure out how those chemicals affect genes so that herbs can be used in terms of epigenetics mm -hmm. or how to affect when disease switches turn on or yeah. off. And um, so there are lots of brilliant people trying to figure out how to keep this traditional ancient form of medicine relevant 
Yeah. Um, because just in the way it exists currently, eventually might become obsolete, mm -hmm. which breaks my heart, and I don't want to believe it. Yeah, well, I mean, I, you would hope that some, like, that it would, again, that it would be used for, in, in a positive effect, right, because, you know, whenever you talk about meds, like, well, it's not, you're not deficient of, like, Prozac. Right. Right, <laughs> like, you, you might be lacking serotonin right. production, and there's herbs that can help you do that, right, mm -hmm. and so it's like, why wouldn't we do more of that? Or why wouldn't AI figure out, it was like, well, yeah, we should be doing more of that because this is obviously not, you know, and so. But if it was done so that it, it so if it was done so that it could view everybody in a completely holistic manner, right? Mm -hmm. So that you were able to input how you were raised, yeah, right? Mm -hmm. Belief structures, all yeah. that patterning getting created and then determining lifestyle choices you were making currently like that is how that could work successfully does that make sense yeah, yeah. Making sense? like i think that there are good ways to do it but then you know it scares me because not everybody has good intentions sure right. 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 Uh, john my best friend and i i've been toying around with like i you know i think one of my missions is to create the new health insurance health assurance is what i want to call it uh, and you know, different things that we read is like, oh well, they're kind of already doing it, and uh, he tends to be get a little bit more like, well, you know, let's not share that information, or and not just him, but oh, dude, people. you and I need to talk and more because I just did this for someone. And for me, it's always like, well, badass, because I don't have to do it then. Then I can just go do something else, because uh, that's you know, take, I know it's a lot of work to get that. I mm -hmm. love it. I want to do it. But if someone else did it, then like. Then I don't have to do it. That's great. Mm -hmm. Then I can go and play some more. Mm -hmm. Is how I, how I usually feel about this. I love the idea of health assurance. I just did a, a whole bunch of like statistical crunching analysis for an insurance, a startup insurance company to see if uninsurable things could actually be insurable. Oh, like what? I can't tell you oh, any more than that. Yeah. Um, but well, the thing is that we spend their idea initially was really beautiful that there's an old system that needs to be cracked because things are not quite the same as they were. Anymore. Yeah, well, the thing is, people spend what on an insurance three, four hundred dollars a month, and, mm -hmm. and sometimes they don't use it, uh, you know, as opposed to like if you, were, if you were to spend three to four hundred dollars on things, on healthy things that you are using, you probably won't never wouldn't need the insurance, mm -hmm. right? And so, but then we're going back to like. The privatization of insurance sure. to begin with right like there's a whole bunch of things about this system that doesn't work so back to like so the idea of like having certain things to focus on to create your own health regimen right and that none of it they're all basic and we do them anyway right? yeah. we eat we drink something do you know what I mean we try to sleep if you're doing things anyway why can't we just refine them and change the way you think. It's actually empowering. People think of it as a, a scarcity model. Yeah. That eating well or doing these things, like it means you can't do other things or that you're somehow denying yourself. Where the hell does that come from? Yeah, yeah. What? When did hedonism <laughs> end up being, do you know what I mean? Something that meant bad health or that if you're doing it in a healthful way, then you're denying yourself of fun. And I just, that's what yeah, it is. Because I definitely me. have heard people say like, I wish I could eat healthier, but it's so expensive. It's like, really? Well, that is kind of true. Mm, I, if, you're, if you're doing a grab and go. Yeah, 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 of course. Right? But if you're doing it at home, 
It doesn't have to be. Correct, yeah. So much. <laughs> I was going to ask you, because you mentioned the eight categories. Mm. Can you name with it without going too far? Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm, gonna, it's, I'm doing it um, at the fest as well, at yeah. the How Do You Help Fest. Um, diet, hydration, sleep, breathing, movement and exercise, pooping, finding joy, and not embodying stress. <laughs> Poop is my favorite word. Oh. <laughs> what is wrong with us and pooping? Right? I, like, yeah. when there are some things we do wrong in this culture, childbirths, pooping, like, or just our attitudes around it, and death. Oh, and sex, there's four. Yeah. Right? But pooping. So what I do is I say, listen, let me just tell you what normal is. Because when I say to people, how, you know, how are your bowel movements? They go, fine. And I go, <laughs> what does that mean? Well, they're normal. What does that mean to you? Here's what normal pooping is. Do you fall into that category? And if you don't, we have to figure out why. Mm. Yeah. We, John shares a story all the time with someone that he asked, like, you know, how often do you poop? And she's like, oh, like Fridays and Sundays. <laughs> and, and we were like, oh, yeah, that's not, we got to work on that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah it's, it's fantastic, right? Like it's, and, and there is testing that's done with poop, right? And that's, yeah, a like, lot of testing can be done. <clears throat> uh, stool testing, right? Mm -hmm. So is that something that you use in your practice? I don't. I don't, I mean, generally I don't have to. GI stuff is not my forte. There are things that I am not good at. Perfect. I am not good at allergies. I'm not good at GI issues. And I am not good at migraines that have a cause beyond lifestyle. There, it's out there for the whole world to hear. Those are the three things I actually suck at. But there are other people that are really good at that stuff. You know, if you're going through cancer treatment, you've got kidney issues, there's a bunch of stuff I'm good at. Those are not them. So I don't do stool testing. Um, but, but the way that I describe it to people is you don't want to hold on to anything slated as waste, right? Like it's just holding garbage in your body and that affects your gut biome and all of our health comes from our gut biome. We all, we all know this. Yeah. And two, you don't want to get rid of anything prior to being able to absorb all of its nutrients. So there's a balance in between those two things and that's what we have to find for you. And then if they need things with pooping and gut biome beyond those kind of basics, I send them to somebody else. Yeah, I'm really. It's a poop specialist. Uh, yeah, like there, there are acupuncturists out there that focus on gut health. You know, and I'm just not one of them. Yeah, I mean <clears throat> that's refreshing though, because I know practitioners that always want to have the answers to everything, and and or the opposite that also is true, where they just want to send you to specialists. Mm, yeah. Right. Um, <clears throat> Did you ever land in one of those at one point? Um, I think I did want, when I was younger, I think with the age comes the wisdom of not. There's a tremendous freedom to not needing to have all the answers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think when I was younger, I tried to figure everything out. Um, but I also, um, you might remember this, Jen, as I used to say to you guys, do not specialize in less yes. than 10 years. You know, like there are no quarterbacks in medicine these days. Like primary care, health care practitioners are so overwhelmed. Like they can't be the quarterbacks to their patients like they used to. Um, we're primary <clears throat> care practitioners in the state of California. And to a certain degree, I can send people, you know, to get answers that they need and kind of court, but I can't order their, mm -hmm. their lab tests if they would want insurance to pay for them and that kind of stuff. So, so, um, 
So not specializing in 10 years allows, in our field, us to become really good diagnosticians. When you specialize too soon, you, you, lose, you lose the meta. You know, you can't see the forest. And it's really important to be a good practitioner, I think, to be able to, to see it all. Would you, also, would you also find that with specializing in something that it might change if you do it in less than 10 years? I mean, I think that there are 10 years, I say loosely. Sure. Um, wait, what was the question? Well, like, would you think that if you do specialize before that, you, you might not be as passionate about it? I mean, I think that if you specialize before, then like, you gotta stick it, you got to stay in your lane. Right. So like if you're specializing into orthopedics, that's fine. But don't try to treat anything beyond orthopedics, because if you're not seeing gut health on the regular, you're probably going to be wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. Stick to orthopedics like. Um, but I also think that that it also makes it so that you can't see all the natural causes to the knee problem if you're just in orthopedics. Does that make sense? Yeah, so like yeah. in a, an inflammatory diet or there are so many other things that could have led to that knee issue beyond just injury. I just like people to be good diagnosticians. Yeah. What do you think <laughs> makes a great diagnostician? Experience with mm -hmm. many different things mm -hmm. over many years. Mm -hmm. Experience is really it. Yeah, there's no shortcuts to them. There are no shortcuts. That's a good way to describe it. They're just art. Yeah. They're just art. Some what? things just take time. Yeah, I, I, I find that a lot too as an, as an employer is that a lot of people, well, because we tend to work with a lot of contractors that, that they want the easy way out, but there isn't mm -hmm. really one. And, mm -hmm. if you, and if it is, it's not going to last very long. Yeah. Because... It's, it's true. And you said it earlier, too. You were like people that want the quick fix. I mean, one of the things I say is, like, we have to be a team. You kind of actually have to lead. Like, I can't fix you. I have no power over you at all. Right? <laughs> like, so so I can't. There is no quick fix for this. Like, it's it really all comes. It's back on your shoulders. I'm just going to help you. You don't have to carry it the whole way, all the weight yourself. Mm. But I can't fix you. Yeah. Interesting. You want to know? Well, it's sort of unrelated, but I am curious about this. So we talk a lot, and I think learn in school a lot about as a practitioner, being able to protect your energy or separate your energy. Yeah. And I'm always curious, you see so many, so many patients in a day, in a week, yeah. and a lot of probably complex cases, and you're feeling that it's an energy medicine, right? Mm -hmm. How do you approach that and keeping your own self? Dr. Jen, that's such a good question. <laughs> it actually really is, because I think it took me years to figure it out like it was um, I think I got too enmeshed in outcomes actually in the beginning and I was very affected by people's outcomes because when you're a fledgling acupuncturist practitioner of anything like am I doing it right and you want to do right by your patients so much and then I think that as I got better I got I had to learn the boundary between where the tip of my own nose ended and my patients kind of started. And I think that I spent a number of years blur with that area blurred, um, uh, that things were maybe a little bit too personal um, or that I would take on their energy too much. Um, and then over time, I think, God, I'm not really sure I can tell you how it, it, it shifted, again, it was probably just an overtime thing, but that I can be so completely engaged and present 
with what somebody is experiencing without taking it on as my own. That separation, I don't know how that happened, but like it's very, it's not uncommon for me to give a patient my cell phone number. They will never abuse it. They don't because they understand the difference between when they need to use it. I don't know, it just works. People are not texting me day and night with all their crazy needs and questions. Yeah. Like somehow there's a mutuality there that works in a way that is non-invasive and doesn't become so enmeshed that it takes too much for me and it is too invasive onto them. Yeah. I don't know where It's like an unspoken agreement, right? But I imagine you would have to learn to not take it over. Because well, that's like what I'm saying over years of discomfort and yeah. energetic boundaries. Like, well, just my experience with different practitioners, like most of the time they're deep empaths. So it's almost like a natural to take it on and you have to kind of learn not yeah. to in a sense. I mean, there are people, I mean, I, you know, when people are close to dying, I, I, they're with me a lot when I'm throughout my day and I think about them a lot and I check in on them a lot. And, but I think that's just part of what being a good healer is. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that that's part of, um, I don't think that's, that's um, unethical or crossing a boundary. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, at some point I shift did that because I think that how they do or are doing stop defining me as a practitioner maybe mm-hmm. because maybe I became confident in my ability and yeah. it was less dependent on them yeah maybe that's the answer yeah because yeah. yeah, it, it would be so draining to be like if they're good then I'm a good practitioner if they're not good then I'm not a good practitioner yeah, and, that's and then true. you wouldn't put yeah. show up in the best form for the next person. You're right. I think you're yeah. absolutely right about that. That's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. <laughs> do you have another one? I'm more just curious about what you think of the future of medicine. Like where do mm-hmm. you think it's headed? Mm-hmm. And you're sort of at this stage of your career you've seen so much and you're also very ingrained in the hospital system and probably have an interesting perspective there. So where do you like twenty, thirty years? So just like I don't do it for my own career, um, <laughs> but I do think that, so I, the traditional part of traditional medicine that I studied, and you and I went to the same school, mm-hmm. um, it, it, I, I like to practice pre-revolutionary Chinese medicine. I don't believe in protocols for things. I don't believe in shortcuts or the ease of the diagnosis that we were trained in to do, which is pretty complex. It's actually really complex, but it's also really beautiful and really poetic and very much connected to nature and and the way of the world. So I promise I'm going to answer your question. So I talk about macrocosm and microcosm when I'm teaching at UC a lot. So in Western medicine, the macrocosm is the human body and the microcosm is the components of cells, right? And that's the universe that they look at. And in Chinese medicine, the macrocosm is the universe and the microcosm is the body because everything that we come into contact with in the world affects our health and well-being. Our health, the holy trinity, mind, body, spirit. In the future of our medicine, if we do end up moving more toward institutional work, academia, being able to get into the places where we were always forbidden to, to enter before, I think my greatest hope 
is that we're able to stay true to the nature of that medicine and that we don't bastardize it to fit into Western medicine. I don't want it to fit into the Western model because I think that the Western model is flawed. And I don't think that that would do the medicine that we practice justice. Mm -hmm. You know, when I get called out for um, cultural appropriation, being a white woman practicing Chinese medicine, you know, I always say thank you. Maybe you can help me figure this out. Like, I charted half in Chinese characters until I started using electronic health records and I did my doctoral residency at Shanghai University Hospital and I credit my teachers all the time and if this is the best medicine for the job should I not be doing it because I'm a white woman like I actually don't know the answer to these questions yeah. mm -hmm. and and um, and so what do you think so I think that the future of it I'm gonna give one more example before I talk about the future <laughs> Western medicine, is, especially through COVID and the pandemic, is looking at group treatment. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of integrative work is looking at group treatment as well. And uh, I spoke at the Integrative uh, Oncology Symposium at UCSF Friday before last, and it was all about group practice. And I'm sure you can, you know, I'm sitting there listening to people doing amazing work and kind of reinventing the wheel. I did my first group in 1994. <laughs> For AIDS patients, right? Like it's 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 but that that and that group practice in Chinese medicine was actually popularized in the States by the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords, like African Americans and Latinos, um, to treat drug addicts because Western medicine wasn't doing it and this was a medicine for the people and by the people. So to answer your question, as we move forward in this, even in institutional academic settings, my hope is that we are able to keep the narrative from just going to the dominant narrative of Western medicine or the Caucasian world or the privilege of the people that can afford it, that we, we maintain accessibility, that we are able to remain true to how we pragmatically, right, how we practice in real life, that everything doesn't just become about sticking needles in, but it's about the whole lifestyle, the into all all ten fingers on both hands of what we practice, um, and that it's up to us to gracefully and eloquently state the importance of treating an entire person, and then also in the same time and in the same breath, sadly. You'll never hear me talk about chi, <laughs> right? You'll, let, you'll rarely hear me talk about yin and yang. You'll hear me talk about um, balanced physiology and homeostasis. And so I think the future is learning how to um, ingratiate ourselves by out through outcomes of patients and to remain true to not just protocolizing and making things simple and easy to chew. And, um, and at the same time, learning how to translate what we do into a modern world so that we can speak the language, um, a language similar enough that we can be heard. Well said. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah? fantastic. Thanks. Mm. Okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna wrap this up, but do you have last, statements definitely where do people find you where, where can they read what you're doing what uh, what you have coming out 
so my website sucks. And everybody's... <laughs> dot com. Everybody, everybody's on my case to fix it. And I'm like, I practice a 4,000-year-old medicine. I don't know how to do that. Um, so I'm trying to actually get myself up to the speed with which apparently is required of me currently. And I think I'm just going to have to hire somebody to do it because I don't know anything about any of that well, We stuff. have all the contacts. We'll help you. Oh, please. Because <laughs> it's desperate. It's a desperate situation. Um, I think that... Um, but it's still www.drjenniferashbydoctorabbreviated.com um, and through there um, you can email me. Um, my private practice is pretty full and it takes months to get into OSHER but I think ultimately what I'm going to have to start doing is getting associates here at my private practice to see it's happening. I, I just have to find the people. Um, um, you can look me up in terms of non-pharmacological Sorry, my phone's ringing and my hearing aids. Um, Non-pharmacological uh, approaches to cancer-related pain. And that's the protocol that I wrote that, that was published. Um, I am... The TED Talk should be out in the next couple of weeks. It's a mm. TEDx Heartland Hill, Vermont. Oh, my God, that was an experience. Um, a beautiful experience, but a tough experience, actually. Um, and... Uh, I don't know how else do people find me, Jen. You have an Instagram. Oh, I have an Instagram. <laughs> yeah, dr underscore Jen Ashby. Um, but I don't. Uh, that's just me being just my normal silly self. <laughs> I don't really, I'm just me, right? So I'm not. I haven't been really concerned with how to present myself publicly and professionally sure. because um, I'm not. I don't want to curate a personality that's different than just who I am every day. Well, I think that's the best way to do it. I don't know. I, mean, yeah. you know, I practice for that. What do I know? But I'm super excited to come to you guys in Austin and yeah. super excited to do the How Do You Health Fest and love the whole concept of it. And I'm just like, really great. I've also um, was contacted by somebody doing a pilot for CBS. Super exciting. So it's it's basically a concept that includes East Asian medicine as part of this medical thing. And they... They contacted me and said, would you be interested in consulting? And I said, tell me more about it. And I was like, oh, my God, you guys are like my heroes. I don't care what you need. I don't care when you need it. Like, first of all, like, if you're bringing Eastern medicine into a Western thing and it's becoming like this, like, there's nobody better in the world to do it for you but me. And I never talk about myself like that. But I was super excited. Like, could you imagine East Asian medicine being on a series on, like, a major like television state like to station yeah anyway, super fun stuff like that so yeah i don't know how to find me i have no idea <laughs> yeah, <about it>. yeah. <laughs> if you're not looking you'll find it you'll yeah. find it. <laughs> but uh and if you're listening to this after december 2nd 2022 or december 2nd through the 4th 2022 uh, you can still find, uh, which you probably will, uh, you can still find her, you, we'll have your talk from that as well, posted on our website. Great. And, uh, and then I'm sure we'll, we're going to connect again. And, and you can find her on our, our uh, Howdy Health page as well too. So the goal with Howdy Health Fest is that it's going to be a TV channel as well. No and we'll be able way. to just release all the segments, all the podcasts, all the, you know, we do courses, we do all the things. and so You're like the good news channel for health. We're, that's that's what we're hoping to be. That's sure. awesome. So little, little by little, right? Like no rush to that. That's the whole. That's the whole point. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, right on. It's like someone's gonna beat you to it. It's like sweet. Then I won't have to do it. 
I actually know that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. I, it was lovely to be in your practice, and uh, well, we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me.